Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Good, good, awesome. Uh, hey, love you guys. So sweet to get to worship with y'all. Um, uh, hey, man, if y'all don't mind, too, just try to keep your masks on if you can, just because we really love y'all and we're trying to keep y'all as safe as possible, um, and, uh, and we, we care about you a ton. Uh, okay, so uh, here's what we're doing this morning. Uh, my name is Ben. I get, to, I get to be one of the pastors who works here. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, if you're streaming online, we love that, uh, we love that you're watching. I'm excited about what's going down today. So we are in the book of Romans, says our big screens up there. And uh, we're going through the book of Romans this entire year. And Romans is a, a heavy book, man. It's not only big, but it is deep. It is a really deep, deep book. And so there's going to be weeks where we like shifted into overdrive and we cover a whole bunch. And then there's weeks where we downshift and really slow down. Today is one of those weeks, you know, whenever we have the big, massive, fancy pants TV up here, you know, oh man, we're going to cover a big chunk of scripture. Um, because what I want to do is I really want to show you what happens in this book. And so uh, this is one of those weeks where we're going to cover an entire chapter in one day. Um, and it's going to be really, really really sweet because it is Romans chapter three. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, go to Romans three and we're going to put it up here on the screen, but we're going to cover uh, this whole uh, this whole chapter, and uh, really what we're going to do is we're gonna sh I'm going to show you how, it, uh, how what Paul is doing in this letter is he's really making an argument, and this is a case that he's building for what the gospel is and what we believe and what Christian theology looks like, and so going through Romans this year is going to be such a rich thing, and so I'm going to move through some of this really quick, and then when we get over here to this section, we're going to zoom in and really camp out on that, and so um, that's, that's really what we're doing this morning is covering that, zooming in, and then really asking the question of, what does faith need to look like in our life? So as you're, as you're finding Romans 3, I want to tell you a story. It's a true story, I think, although I don't actually know the girl. Um, and I, I love to, this is one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, I, I don't think I've told it in college for a couple of years, but um, it's going to go somewhere, I promise, guys. So uh, here's what happened. So a girl who went to A&M, she had gone to New York to do a summer internship when she was in college. And during that summer internship, she took a job walking people's dogs. This was way pre-COVID. This was like a decade ago, right, uh, when you could, like, hang out and talk to people in, in person. <clears throat> and so she did a dog walking business. And there was this one specific family that she walked their dogs in New York because they don't have a yard. And so she would come as a college student and walk them around New York. And they had two dogs. They had a little tiny yippy dog. I don't know what those are called, but the real annoying ones, they, one of those. And then they had a big golden retriever that was super old. Like, really, you're going to see how old it was in a second. So <clears throat> she takes those dogs on a walk, and she's, she's walking the dogs, and she gets to a, a stoplight and stops, and the big golden retriever just lays down. You know, but the light was red, so it's not a big deal. But the lights turn green. Okay, let's go. And just lays down, and then just lays its head down on the concrete, and then just dies. That's an, appropriate, that's an appropriate reaction, right? It's a sad story. It dies. It gets way worse, guys, so buckle up. <clears throat> so she, this college girl, scoops up a dead golden retriever on the road, right, walks it back to the flat that this family is in, and she's, you know, obviously feels awful. It, was, it lived a really good life, just so you guys know, all that kind of stuff, all that good stuff. 
carries it back up to the, the front door, and she's thinking, oh, man, they're going to be so mad. And she's got the other little dog still on the leash. They open the door, and they actually feel bad for her. And so they're like, oh, my gosh, honestly, we knew it was going to die any second anyway. Oh, we feel so bad. But here's the thing. Can you please go dispose? We'll pay extra money. Can you dispose of the dog's body before our kids get home? We'll give you extra money. And here, and they got a duffel bag, true story. They got a duffel bag and put the dead golden retriever inside the duffel bag, zipped it up, right? And she was like, sure. They paid her extra money, and there's apparently an animal hospital that humanely disposes of dead golden retrievers. So she then, this college girl, carries a dead golden retriever and decides, I'm not going to take a taxi. I'm going to take the subway. Because why wouldn't you, right? Save a little bit of money. She takes the duffel bag, goes, sits on the subway, right? And so there she is, sweet college girl, the duffel bag with the dead dog in it, just chilling on the subway. And across from her is a cute boy. And they kind of make eyes. And there's like some flirtiness happening. And they're making eyes and they look away and look back at each other and they keep looking at each other. And then like the seat next to her opens up and so he comes and sits next to her. And he's like talking to her and they're making small talk, right? And he's cute and he's dreamy and they're all of that. And, and, and then eventually, you know, she's got this big awkward duffel bag and she's kind of gripping it paranoidly, just holding on to this thing. And he says, hey, what's in the bag? And what comes out of her mouth, I don't know why this was what came out of her mouth, but what just instinctively came out of her mouth was she just said the word technology. That was her answer. That was her lie, right, to this guy. I guess, like, it was a keyboard and a laptop computer. I don't know. Like, it was just this lumpy bag, and she thought, technology. She was just like, oh, it's technology. Like, you carry around technology in duffel bags. Regardless, they moved on. They chatted, and then it was like, oh, it was her stop. So the, the, the subway stops. She stands up. Oh, he stands up, too. I guess it's his stop, too. The doors open. The next thing she knows, some people are helping her off the ground of the subway car. And she's like, what? What just, what just happened there? Are you okay? Are you okay? What happened? Are you okay? What happened? That guy, when the doors open, he punched you, stole your bag, and ran off. True story, supposedly. I didn't meet the girl. So there's a guy who punched a girl, right, which that's frowned upon, right? Punched a girl, stole a dead devil. So there was a guy somewhere in a buried lair in New York, right, in caves, wherever jerks like that would live, in some back alley cave, who's unzipping a bag that he thinks is filled with technology, right? And actually it's filled with a dead golden retriever. And if I'm that guy, I'm thinking, who was that girl? Right? Like who, what kind of a psycho carries around dead dogs? So he's probably thinking, I dodged a bullet. But I, I love, here's why I tell that story. I promise that story has a, has a point. Here's why I tell that story. I tell that story because I think there is something, ma- I just, I want you to have tattooed in your brain this idea of shock and surprise. Right? Here this really crafty guy who just is a deplorable person, Right? He thinks he's unzipping something that is just going to be a treasure, right? Worth putting himself at risk and his life at risk and going to jail and making horrible decisions to do this. And as he unzips it, he has got to be massively shocked and surprised in in what the pivot was that happened in his life. I want you to remember how bizarre that must be. And I want you to remember that because I think where we're going in Romans 3, when we get to the end of it, there is something that hits us at the end of Romans 3 that there will be people who think they've 
fought for something and clawed for something and worked for something. And when they get to the end and they are unzipped and they realize what they have is trash and it is worthless after all they've done. And that is for us and that is for you. And it's not to scare us, but it is to warn us in Romans 3 of making sure that we are not caught surprised thinking we've clawed and worked and fought for this thing that isn't real. Where Romans 3 takes us is what does real saving faith look like? Romans 3 is one of the, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this as a pastor, but one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament. And we'll see why here in a second. But it is one of the most crucial and important seminal chapters as Paul and the entire New Testament makes this argument for how do we actually know Christ? How are we saved? What does that faith look like? What does it take for us to actually inherit eternal life? And we're going to see the gospel and really the arguments that Paul has made up to this point will now climax in chapter 3. And so that's where we're going, chapter 3. Let me break it down for us. And so what I want to do is I, we're not, we don't have a whole lot of time to just zoom in all, all these things. And I'll show you, we won't leave anything out long term, but I want to move pretty quickly because I, I need to make sure we get to the crux of this argument. Here's what he does in verses 1 through 4. Uh, in verses 1 through 4, and so if you've got your Bibles, I want, I want you guys, we so badly want you, us as a, a ministry, as a church, Christ Chapel, we want you to fall in love with the Word of God. Man, this book is so good. And we want you to see what's happening in it and what Paul is doing. And so I'm going to bracket this real quick because there's a question here that's asked. And so I want you to understand what's happening in your Bible. That in verses 1 through 4, Paul is laying out this whole case, and he brings up a question here. And the question he brings up, we'll put it up on the screen, the question he brings up is this idea of does being a Jew have spiritual advantages? And so you got to understand the context. Paul is a Jew who's writing to Jews who have lived their life based on the Old Testament in faith in God, chosen by God, but awaiting one day a Savior who will fulfill their prophecies. And so the whole Old Testament. And so now all of a sudden you have these Jews who have found Jesus as the fulfillment of that. And so there's a lot of this ethnic Jewish community that's still saying, okay, well, I was kind of the chosen people, but now, because of Jesus, this, this thing is available, it seems like, to everybody, to Jews and to Gentiles, which is everyone else. So is there any advantage still, spiritual advantage of being a Jew? I'm not going to dig into that because he dives into that exact question in more detail in chapter 4. So then that leads to this question. So he asks this question, which he's going to go into detail in the next chapter. Then he asks this question in verses 5 through 8. He basically asks this question, if my mistakes, right, let, me, let me read it for you. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in human ways. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I sp still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? Okay, and so what he's saying here is he's saying, hey, if I continue to do bad things, right? if I continue to make mistakes, God's grace abounds. God is gracious still, even when I make mistakes. So logically, does it really matter? Shouldn't I just, shouldn't I just keep making mistakes to let God show off how gracious he is? 
He answers that with a short no, but we're not going to zoom in on this argument, guys, because I want you to see this is what he spends all of chapter 6 talking about. And so in a few weeks, when I get to preach chapter 6, we're going to jump back into this and really zoom in because I think it is a massively important question, I think especially for people who grew up in the church, heard the grace of God, knew, oh man, good, I'm saved not because of what I do, but just because of grace, and take that grace as a wild card to just do whatever I want. It is a massively relevant question that we're going to zoom in on. He says no, but he's going to really expound on it in chapter 6. So look at the third thing that he does, and this is, this is really what leads us uh, to, to where we're camping out. This third bracket here is verses 9 through verse 20, and I'm going to read it to you. <clears throat> Paul says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, and now he's about to quote a bunch of Old Testament verses, all glued together here. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verse 19 and 20, he says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That was a massive chunk. But what Paul is doing in verses 9 through 20 in this chapter is he's answering this question, who is good enough? Who is good enough? And it will lead us to the climax of literally the first two chapters and then all the way to verse 20, Paul is doing one thing. If you remember back from chapter one, it's basically, man, depravity. Remember it was, man, all of those people have it wrong. And then he pivots and he says, but you guys aren't doing it right either. And he changes the pronouns and he says, them, them, them. And he's like, us, us, us. Man, we're all messing up. We're all blowing it. Chapter one, chapter two, last week, hypocrisy. We're hypocrites. We say they're doing wrong, but we're doing wrong. And here in chapter three, he says, okay, so... So is anyone doing good? Who's going to make this? And he says, nobody. He says, no one is good enough. No, not one, he says. Not one person seeks for God. All, all of them have come short. Um, he, he does this really incredible thing too. And I, I just, I want to show you he, in verses uh, 10 through uh, verse 18, he ties all these Old Testament references in, which is really insane, right? He, um, in verse 11, it's actually a quote from Psalm 14. Uh, also, Ecclesiastes 7 um, says the same thing, that no one does good, no, not one. Uh, in verses 13 here is actually reference to Psalm 5. In verse 15, it's a reference to Proverbs 1. In verse 16, it's actually a reference to Isaiah 59, and then, and then Proverbs uh, 30, uh, Psalm 38 is actually straight from the very last thing he says in verse 18, that the fear of God is before their eyes. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking all of Scripture. He's taking the Old Testament, he's taking the New Testament, 
all the way up through the first three, through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then through the first three chapters of Romans, and he's making this case all throughout history, we've been saying the same thing. In the Old Testament, Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah, he's quoting them now in the New Testament, and he's tying everything together to make this climactic argument. You are not good enough. To make this climactic argument that no one does good enough. It is probably one of the most depressing points in Scripture at verse 20. Which is why then, if we understand the darkness that we deserve, that everyone deserves, the sin, how we come up short, if we understand that, how the works, our works don't add up to the law. Let me explain that real quick. Um, The law would have been the standard that God has set. God says, be righteous as I am righteous. He sets a standard, right? I know some of you guys who are, and I can relate to this, I'm married to somebody who's way out of my league. I know some of you guys who are dating people way out of their league. What's up, Asher? Um, And so (laughs) because of that, because of that, he would totally agree with that, man. He would be the first one to admit. Um, Right? We do that, right? For some reason, guys, we're like, man, that girl's out of my league. I'm going for it. There is a standard, right? There is a standard there of how do I get that girl, right? How do I get that guy to pay attention to me, right? And, and there is this standard that we work towards. And so this idea, take that really inadequate illustration and apply it to the perfect God of the universe, creator of all things and sustainer of all life, that he is the one who is set apart. And he is the one who is holy and righteous. And he says, be righteous as I am. And there is a law that says, this is what that looks like. This is what that standard looks like to be in relationship to me. And, and that's what he means by this law, right? He's given it in his Old Testament. Everyone was chasing after that. That's what the word works means, which we're going to see a lot in here. I got to work my way up to that. I got to do the things so that I can achieve the law. And then he says, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to work your way up. You will not. The law will condemn everyone. Now watch this. This is the climax of the argument of the gospel in verses 21 through 27. There's a lot of big words here um, that I have to look up a lot, but I'm going to read it all in one chunk because it's so stinking beautiful. So I'm going to read it all, and then most of the rest of our time, we're just going to camp out on, okay, this has been pretty pretty doom and gloom up until verse 20. We're going to camp out on what this gospel looks like, what this good news out of all this bad news looks like. Verse 21, this is what Paul says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Let me read that again. But now the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we can't achieve, that I can't earn, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is awesome. If that's not highlighted in your Bible, I would highly recommend it. Let me unpack that. There's a lot there. And there's a lot of big words there uh, and a lot of stuff that, that we, I want us to zoom as deep as we have time for this morning. Um, and I want you to keep digging. I, want you, I would just want to, let me go on a rabbit trail here. If, if the only place you're finding spiritual nourishment is just this on Sunday morning, we love that you're here. We're going to take you deep into God's word. Continue to chew through this in the week. Continue to chew through Romans 3. Next week, we're going to be in Romans 4. Spend some time in Romans 4. Do dig in, dig in. If you're not in a family night, talk to us. Man, there are family nights all around Fort Worth that are going to be opening up their homes to walk with, hey, man, what questions do you have? And where are you struggling? And what are you seeing? And how can we help? We want you to keep digging into this. Um, Sunday morning is not enough for this richness. Um, let, me, let me circle a few things in here. So we've now just zoomed in on, the, on these verses. So I, I want to just explain justified, right? There's this idea of uh, justified here in verse 24, which really the, I, the concept behind justified is that that's the good news, right? That, that we are now made righteous, that we weren't. We saw in the first three chapters, we weren't, and now all of a sudden, we get this justification with God. Now all of a sudden, we're made right with him. Now all of a sudden, that standard that was unattainable, we are justified, and it's because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, so look at this in verse 24. The redemption that is in Christ, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The redemption we have, the reason that I don't hang my head down low when I get to verse 20 of Romans 3 and I realize, man, I am not good enough. I can't do it. The law condemns me. I'm not going to make it. It's because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the bad news that, that gives contrast to the beautiful good news that our God was perfect. He showed up in the flesh, in the form and person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God, fully man, lived the life that I was called to live. Perfect, without blemish and then died the death that I actually deserved to die. Hung on a cross, rose again, and now stands at the right hand of God, interceding, whispering in the ear of God to all of those who put their faith in him, who put their faith in him, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. He stands and says, that's my daughter, that's my son. Reconciled, redeemed the debt that I had that I was never gonna pay off, was redeemed by that. The beautiful gospel. Would we, I don't care if you heard that at VBS when you were seven years old and prayed the prayer and put your faith in Jesus, that truth of the gospel should never grow weary for us. We should never grow tired. We should never look for deeper theology than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should never see the gospel of Jesus Christ because faith in Jesus, it gives us this other way. It gives us this other way. And that gospel, what Jesus has done, so often we think of that. And we, we, some of us who grew up in the church think, nod our heads. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I got, the, I got the Jesus thing. I put my faith in him. That is scary if we are flippant with the gospel. If the gospel has become white noise, if we're ready for something else or something more, or something deeper, or give me another application point. The gospel is the beginning and the end of our maturity as believers. And so often people fall into this trap of thinking, yeah, yeah, I put my faith in Jesus. That was like the, 
the entryway, and now I need to do other things to grow and maintain and become a more mature believer. Man, there is, there is effects of the gospel, but all of those effects and maturity in your life of growing as, as followers of Christ, they all come from one source, deeper, deeper, deeper understanding of chapter 3, verse 23. The gospel. Jesus has done what he said, that he has redeemed us in Christ. And because of that, this good news, he has made another way. Uh, Look at propitiation of his blood. That's not something we go around campus talking a lot about. Um, Propitiation of his blood is this idea that he has appeased, right? That that by his blood, by, by Christ's sacrifice and dying, that his holy death, which is what I really deserve, what you deserved, appeased the debt that we owed. And so because of that, not only is, is faith, you know, this other way, it is the only way, right? Faith in Jesus is the only way for us to be able to have it. No other religion. Man, think critically about this. Wrestle with this. Don't just drink the Kool-Aid. Wrestle with God's word. Wrestle with the truth. Ask hard questions. No other faith says that. No, every other faith structure in the world says Man, here is our prophet, and he has given us a rule book of how to work our way up to God. Here is, here is our prophet or our leader or our religious figure who says, this is how you get to that point. Christianity is the only one that said, there was no way you were ever going to make it anyway. I had to come to you, die, take your place, so that you might be able to receive that redemption. It is beautiful and it is powerful, and it is the only way. It's unique to every other faith system in the world. So what does saving faith look like? Right, we have this, right? What is that idea of saving faith? We've now received by faith. So that's so important, right? Because, okay, good, nod my head. Jesus, he died. I'm at church, so I've probably heard that before. I I get it received by faith. But don't be the person that unzips the bag thinking one thing and gets something massively different and worthless. What does it mean to have saving faith? That's the question I want to answer the rest of this time, right? To end our time, I want to answer that question. What does saving faith look like? And here's the answer. The reformers, um, back whenever, hundreds of years ago, uh, they really started digging into scripture, right? We've got this beautiful verse 23 that has really set the gospel in front of us. And then they really started as religion really took over and faith and theology really kind of dismissed uh, in Christian history. There was this reformation that happened and guys went back to the Bible and said, man, what is it? So they came up with kind of these three, this almost Venn diagram of what does saving faith really look like? And they use Latin words. I'm not gonna use Latin words. They said this, faith is verified, right? My faith, how do I know if I have it? How do I know if what I have in my life is real and true and actually worthwhile, or how do I know if I'm going to be super surprised one day? Faith is verified by belief, trust, and obedience. Faith in your life is going to be verified, right? A, a litmus test. Man, do I, do I really, have I really put my faith, have I really received by faith this incredible gospel gift? I've heard it, I've nodded my head, I've sung about it, I've prayed prayers about it, does that count? I I prayed a prayer and I said yes, is that what that means? How do I verify it? There should be belief, trust, and obedience. Let me show you what I mean, Um, belief. 
do I believe this gospel? Do I believe that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he was going to do? Do I believe the historical reality that 2,000 years ago, God put on flesh and became a man and lived the perfect life and died death and then defeated death? Do I believe that? Is there belief in your life? But it doesn't stop there, right? I think so often this is a really, really dangerous thing, especially for those of you guys who grew up in the Bible Belt and for those of you guys who didn't grow up in the Bible Belt, how freaking weird is this thing, right? Like those of you who didn't grow up in the Bible Belt and you show up at TCU and you're like, wow, Texas is weird. This whole Christian Bible Belt culture thing is weird. I get it. And it's a real easy trap to be like, okay, so that's what I'm supposed to believe. But look at what James says. Let me caution us here. James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, James says this. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's important. We'll get to that here in a little bit. And then in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James says, hey, your belief that Jesus was God's son, that Jesus did what he said he was at. Your belief, even demons believe, right? Demons believe Jesus is who he said he was. I mean, demons have a ton of belief. Demons believe that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God with all authority and power given to him, right? Demons believe that, and he says, hey, belief is important, but that is not what verifies a saving faith in us. So if it's not just belief, What else verifies? It's yes, I've got to believe those things, but also I've got to trust. I've got to believe who he was, and then I've got to trust, right? It doesn't stop there. So my son, Charlie, he's going to turn seven tomorrow, guys. So that's exciting. So if you all see the seven-year-old walking around, uh, tell him happy birthday. Um, Charlie believes, probably, his dad loves him, right? I tell him I love him a ton, I tell him who I believe he is as a man and who God has made him to be. I speak that into his life. He has the information if you were to quiz him. Does your dad love you? He would say yes. Does he trust that I actually love him? And that will be played out in a very different way throughout the rest of his life. Sure, he intellectually understands that I say those words over him and that I love him, but does he really trust what that love is, what that does, what that means for him? that will affect our relationship and how he interacts with me. Yeah, my dad loves me, but does he really trust that? For us, we believe Jesus is who he said he was, but do we trust it? That trust will define our relationship, right? My son trusting that he's got a dad who actually loves him, not just because he scored a goal and not just because he got good grades and not just because he obeyed his mom, but unconditionally loves him, that will shape our relationship. Your trust, you really trust that you have a father in heaven. Not just a historical savior 2,000 years ago that you nod your head to, but a father in heaven who says, I set your value, daughter. I set your worth, son. Do we trust that? That will shape our relationship of do we actually know him or do we just believe and know about him? Matthew 7 Verse 21 through 23, it's a really sobering passage. Right? This is that concept that I talked about in the very first story, this idea of just this surprise and horrible shock. 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, this is scary, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These are people who knew the name of Jesus, knew that Jesus was a big deal, believed Jesus, and then I will declare to them, in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Honestly, when I read Matthew 7, I think those are some varsity Christians right there. Man, they like are casting out demons and doing crazy stuff in the name of Jesus and working their tails off. And they get to the end and they're like, hey, it's me. And he says, I don't know who you are. You knew me. You did a lot of things for me in my name, but we didn't have a relationship. And if we don't trust that our God is relational and present and real and involved and cares about who you hang out with and what you put into your mind and what you look at on your phone and who you date and how your thought process works and how you talk to others and how you talk about people when they're not in the room. And if you don't trust, you have a God and a Father who says, I care about all those things and I care about you. That will shape your relationship. Do you believe? Do you trust? And then lastly, is there obedience? Right? Is there obedience in your life? Not to earn it, but to verify this faith. Um, in my marriage, my wife loves me, and I'm really blessed. I believe that. I trust that. I also am relatively, I'm not going to lie on camera, uh, I am relatively helpful around the house, right? We call it clutter patrol, although I did a pretty crummy job of it yesterday. Um, but I, all right, babe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up when I get home. Clutter patrol is one of my spiritual gifts, right? I'm good at like the clutter. She's really good at cleaning because I can't see dirt and I don't see details. But I see like, oh, big picture, there's a whole bunch of mail right there and a bunch of junk here and I left my shoes here and kids' toys. So I'm a clutter patrol guy, right? <clears throat> Sweet job. Um, man, I clutter patrol because I love my wife and because she loves me. I don't clutter patrol to earn it, right? My... My serving of my wife, my doing good things is not to earn her love, right? She's stuck with me, right? We're married. We got two kids. We share a house. Like, this is, this is a thing. This is a covenant, unconditional. Um, that, that stuff I do is out of a response. But if I love her, there would be a response. If I say I love my wife and I cheated on her, then I would be lying. Unless my definition of love was some weird bachelor nation crap, right? <laughs> right? But actually, biblical love, right? Not like shallow feelings. No offense, bachelor nation. But um, actual covenantal love, right? Well, then that would define, man, my covenantal love then has action attached to it. Not to earn my love, but because I really love her unconditionally with a covenantal love, which we'll continue to talk about through the book of Romans, then there will be obedience attached to that. There will be commitment. There will be response from that. Is there obedience in your walk with Christ, the things he's calling you to? Again, not because you earned it. Look, look what he does here at the end of, let me go back to chapter, the big picture of chapter three. Let me just show you the end here. Look what he says. And make no mistake, let me, before I read it, make no mistake, 
once you are saved, we believe theologically here at this church because of this book, once you are saved, you're always saved. We don't believe that someone can lose salvation. There's a lot of verses I'd love to support that with if, if we had time. If you have questions about that, I'd love to chat with you. But theologically, we believe once you have actually put saving faith in Christ, you might wander, you might go prodigal, you might, you, we all have ups and downs, but once you are saved, you are always saved. But we still have to check, man, is this actually saving faith or was I just going along with the motions? I'm gonna be really surprised one day. So make no mistake on that. And then look at where he ends chapter three. <clears throat> For loved by this amazing grace of God, it's his grace, not my works. Well, then he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too, yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, a reference to the Jewish people, and the uncircumcised, a reference to the Gentile people through the same faith. And then look at verse 31, the last, last verse on here. We'll bold it for you. Do we then nullify the law by faith? Do we then stop needing to follow the law, stop obeying, stop doing the works do we then just need to stop doing that? Because, man, verses 21 through 26 made it pretty clear, it is grace that I am saved. God is just gracious. I couldn't earn it, and he saved me anyway. So do we just need to nullify the law? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. There should still be in our life, if we are really in faith, there should be an obedience that comes out of that. There should be actions and work and all of those sweet things from that. What does the faith required look like? It looks like something that's been verified by belief. Yes, I believe. Trust. Yes, I actually trust and I grow in my trust. And obedience. And yes, I grow in my obedience and I have ups and downs. Is my hope in him? Do I really, can I really say, here's what we're going to do to end this time. We're going to really put into practice this. And we're going to give you guys the space to take this, chapter 3 of Romans, bad news that leads to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to say, man, let's practice this. Whether you have put your faith in Christ when you were a kid, or today you realize you were here for a very specific eternal reason. And it was not an accident that you showed up this morning. Because you needed to hear the gospel. And you needed to hear that the gospel wasn't just theology and things we're supposed to believe about Jesus, but actually a relationship to put your trust in. And there is freedom in that. Man, it is exhausting to try to earn it. There's freedom in this. Man, it's exhausting to try to be good enough. And the gospel comes along and says, stop. Stop trying to earn it and just rest in me. And so for the rest of our time, as we go back into worship here in just a second, we're going to put into practice that exercise to say, can we do that? Are our hearts there? Maybe they were there and we're saved, but man, we have wandered and we have missed that water to our soul to claim that he is better. And that's the best litmus test for us to determine, man, am I really walking in faith? And it really becomes the question of, do I really believe he is better? Do I believe he is, he is better than the other things I'm chasing? Do I believe he is better than my vanity? Do I believe he's better than my grades? Do I believe he's better than the girl or the guy? Do I believe he's better than what I look like? Do I believe he's better 
than what the world says I need to chase? Do I believe he is better than those things? And so my application for you today to end this service is as we worship, do not sing lyrics on a screen or on a wall. Talk to the Lord. Proclaim to him that he is better. No matter how far you have wandered, daughter of Christ or son of God, no matter how far, no matter what you've done, no matter what your weekend or life or summer looked like, his grace is sufficient for you. So rest in his grace and then respond by acknowledging all the ways that he is better, all the ways that you want to put your hope, not in all the other things that we get distracted with, but put your hope in him. Let me pray and then let's practice doing just that. Father, um, would we always love looking deeply at your gospel? Would we never grow tired of staring at your gospel? Father, um, I'm reminded of the story in Luke. We talk about it pretty often, but this uh, story where a man goes before God um, and their kid is sick and they say, Lord, would you heal him? And he sees Jesus and he knows, he believes Jesus has the power. He's seen it before. And he says, would you heal my kid back home? And Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, I believe. And then in the same sentence, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And God, as a 37-year-old pastor, I need that. I need to never be satisfied with my belief, but Lord, would you continue to deepen my belief in who you are? Father, for my friends who are in this room or who are live streaming, would you just do business with us this morning, reminding us that we never earned it, the freedom that comes from the grace of this amazing gift of your salvation that we have, and Lord, teach us how to have deep, deep faith, that we believe, that we trust, that we obey, that we respond because of how beautiful you've loved us. And so, Father, just like that father asked the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, we are a people who I think most of us in this room, we believe. But God, would you help our unbelief? In the name of Jesus, amen.